Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have Shubanga Pandey in our Desi Lit Biz segment. He's the chief editor of Himal South Asian magazine and senior editor at Sarg Anthology. So we'll be discussing the work being done by both these fine venues. Also, we have Kavita Jindal sharing her favorite Desi books in five Desi faves. Kavita's novel, Manual for a Decent Life, is out now. So please sit back and enjoy. Notable New Books for November. You can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash Desi dash books dash 2020. This is a US-based site, so my apologies to non-US listeners, but you can still see the list of all the books that have come out in 2020 and been mentioned on the podcast. I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin, so if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the Desi Books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. You can also send an email to hellodesibooks at gmail.com. The social media links will also be in the transcript, and they're always on the website. First up is Murder in Old Bombay, a debut novel by Nev March. This was out November 10th. It's already won the Minotaur Books Mystery Writers of America First Crime Novel Award. Set in 1892 Bombay, it features a protagonist who is inspired by Sherlock Holmes. We also have the British Raj, mixed race politics, war, murder, the Parsi community, and more. Fault Lines by Mina Alexander is a posthumous memoir with an afterword by Guy Trabahadur. It follow, follows um, Alexander's evolution as a writer at home and in exile across continents and cultures. Mina Alexander was born into a privileged childhood in India and grew into a turbulent adolescence in the Sudan before moving to England and then New York City. With poetic insight and devastating honesty, Alexander explores how trauma and recovery shaped the entire landscape of her memory, of her family, her writing process, and her very self. Time's Honour History, Conscience, and Britain's Empire by Priya Satya. This was out in October, but I missed it in the last roundup. Satya is a professor of international history at Stanford. And this book is about how history, as we know it and as was written by British historians, enabled colonization and imperialism as processes, but it also gives us necessary alternative accounts. 
The Bhutto Dynasty, The Struggle for Power in Pakistan, by Owen Bennett Jones. This was also out in late October. And as the title says, it's about the multi-generational political dynasty and written by a former BBC correspondent. He also covers the politics around Benazir Bhutto's assassination, the many controversies around the various Bhutto's, and how this family's political and personal lives have been closely connected with the development of Pakistan as a nation. Another October book, a story collection titled The Curse by the Tamil writer Salma and translated by N. Kalyan Raman. Loosely rooted in the rural Muslim communities of Tamil Nadu, these stories shine a light on the complex dramas governing the daily lives of most women moving through the world. Mistress of Melodies, Stories of Courtesans and Prostituted Women by Nabendu Ghosh and edited by Ratnottama Sengupta. This is a September book I'd missed and these are stories of women from the streets of Calcutta by one of its finest writers. Royals and Rebels by Priya Atwal is also a September book I'd missed. It's about the rise and fall of the Sikh Empire. It starts in the late 18th century when Maharaja Ranjit Singh entered the scene and created a Sikh Empire that stretched throughout northwestern India into Afghanistan and Tibet. A fascinating story about family, loyalty, power, globalism, religion, and more. In the They See Lit Biz segment today, we have Shubhanga Pandey. He's the chief editor of Himal South Asian, a digital magazine of South Asian politics, culture, and history. For over 30 years, Himal South Asian has challenged nationalist orthodoxies and covered the region with imagination, rigor, and irreverence, with contributions from some of the most interesting writers in the region. A digital magazine in its current incarnation, Himal publishes a wide variety of articles, from sharp commentaries and long-form reportage to reviews and essays, focusing not on news, but in-depth journalism. Independent non-nationalist, pan-regionalist. Himal tells Indians and Nepalis about Pakistanis, Bhutanese and Afghans, Sri Lankans, Bangladeshis and Burmese about Tibetans and Maldivians, and the rest of the world about this often overlooked region. Shivanga is also a senior editor at the South Asian avant-garde, or SARG, anthology. Other editors from SARG have been on this podcast before, and I'll link to them in the transcript. For those of you who might be new to SARG, here's a brief description. SARG features intimate incendiary fiction, essays, journalism, 
plays, poetry, and hybrid multimedia work. It reclaims dissident and collaborative traditions that have long been excised from South Asian histories and forges new radical communities. The digital platform allows work to travel everywhere South Asians live and practice. Himal is also a sister publication of SARG, so in today's They See Lit This segment, Shipanga will be sharing news and views about both Himal and SARG, especially their most important priorities in the near term. Hi, Shivanga. Welcome to the AC Books podcast. And uh, to all the listeners here, uh, Shivanga, as I mentioned earlier, is the editor at the Himal South Asian Literary Magazine. So let's start, uh, Shivanga, if you would, by introducing our listeners to the magazine. Let's, you know, to those of uh, our listeners who may not even know about it, if you would please just give us an introduction and tell us a little bit about its history. Sure. Um, and thanks for having me, Jenny. Um, so Himal South Asian is a digital magazine of South Asian politics, culture, and history. Um, we, we don't do news stories. We generally do analytical, long-form, um, you know, reporting, analysis, commentary, book reviews, cultural reviews, um, so a, a broad spectrum of writing, um, and uh, but the main thrust is that we uh, we try to kind of go beyond uh, writings that just think about the nation states and think of um, of the South Asian nations in in silos. And we the aim is to kind of you know talk about South Asia from a more regional perspective. And um, so we've actually been around for some time. So the magazine started in 1987. Um, and it um, began as a Himalayan magazine, so a magazine looking at the Himalayan region. Um, and for the next several years, it was like that until '96, when it truly kind of took a South Asian shape and, and uh, started, you know, publishing stories all around South Asia. Um, and so it was based in Kathmandu, Nepal, for about three decades um, until we started facing problems from the government. Um, there was a kind of bureaucratic strangulation. So it wasn't a case of overt censorship, but more of them making it difficult for us to run. And ironically, not for something we published, but more because our founding editor, uh, who was kind of an anti-corruption activist, um, started getting pressure from you know certain people uh, in the States. So uh, there was a temporary suspension and we moved to Colombo, Sri Lanka in 2018. Um, so we started functioning you know, since, since March 2018, but you know, and we've continued with that spirit. We we used to be a print publication um, till 2016, so till the suspension. So right now we're a digital-only publication. Um, but but again, the general aim is that we um, we publish stories that you know we tell one South Asian about another South Asian region, but also um, explain South Asia to the world and try to cover stories that are often overlooked by mainstream media. So I think that's that's the kind of spirit um, that we're operating in. That's great. And you know what I loved about when I went to your website earlier to kind of just look through that history that you mentioned, the hour story, there's a sentence in there that I really appreciated. And that says that um, 
Himal tells Indians and Nepalese about Pakistanis, Bhutanese, and Afghans, Sri Lankans, Bangladeshis, and Burmese about Tibetans and Maldivians, and the rest of the world about this often overlooked region. So I love that because it's not just, okay, we want to tell the world what's going on in South Asia, but it's also all of these neighboring countries now, which have such a shared history, right? There's so much shared history <clears throat> within South Asia between these countries. And I think that we have, you know, opinions and ideas, whether it's received wisdom or passed down biases about our neighbors. And I think that having a forum or a venue like Himal, where you're addressing all of that is just, I mean, I don't know, quite frankly, I don't know that there is anything else like Himal South Asian out there. Am I, am I correct? Is there any other magazine that does what you guys do? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a real lack of, um, of kind of an intellectual milieu or of journalistic collaboration where, um, you know, even if there are um, publications that kind of do South Asian news and, and reporting, it's always framed through what the nation states are thinking, you know, what the national interest of the particular country is. Um, so, and I, you know, some of this has to do with the history of, of how, you know, countries in South Asia emerged, you know, after colonial rule and, and, and that has in many ways, I think, continues to impact how we think about the region. Um, so in a way, Himal's project is also to try to, you know, undermine that and to kind of re- revisit the shared history that the, the region and the people have. So um, what we've always tried to do is think about regions and, and languages and areas and, you know, connections and, and, and kind of shared, um, shared past, but also shared contemporary, you know, history. So um, it's something that often gets overlooked even by, you know, sometimes alternate medias in, in all of the South Asian countries. Um, mm. And I think what's, What's also ironic is that I would say compared to, let's say, 20, 25 years ago, um, you know, when, when Himal kind of began and, and at that age, um, there's actually less, I feel, kind of interest amongst readers of one country, of South Asia, you know, of news of the other country. So, and there's constant example of uh, misreporting, um, you know, fabrications now, um, you know, and, and Ironically, the, the world of internet doesn't seem to have solved that, that problem, right? You would have expected mm -hmm. there to be more of that. So, um, so I think our effort has always been to kind of try to see those gaps and, and address that. As you were saying that, I was thinking of another, you know, the venues that I'm familiar with in India that do similar sort of thing, um, like Caravan Magazine, for example, but their focus is, of course, you know, naturally their focus is on India and it's more India centric. Whereas again, what you're doing is you're giving us South Asia and the shared history. So I like that a lot. So tell us a bit about your tenure as editor. What have been some of the highlights, you know, as you've been in this role? Um, and then what are some of your own goals and aims for the magazine? Um, as you look forward? So the magazine went uh, through a bit of transition at the beginning of the year. Um, um, so our former editor left around, you know, towards the beginning of the year. Um, incidentally, we also kind of launched the new website and a membership program um, around the same time. Um, and, mm -hmm. and then we started seeing, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic all around. Uh, so it was a bit of a challenging time for me and, and you know, for, for our, our small editorial team to kind of, to you know uh, to to 
go ahead um but i think we're we're really happy with what we've managed to do over the last you know 8 9 months um we had started a few interesting projects just before the the pandemic again uh, including a uh, kind of podcast newsletter which would do a roundup of you know news and events and um, often things that that don't get space in in mainstream media um so we started with that obviously after covid we had to completely uh kind of pause a lot of other projects and stories we were involved in and try to get as many uh, as many stories about covid as possible but without again uh, you know without really uh, looking at the news but trying to look at different you know emerging trends um or kind of stories that that were not being reported elsewhere um so i think we there was one thing we started called uh, notes from the uh, notes from the ground which is basically kind of like lockdown journals of of people writing from different parts of south asia but also south asians from different parts of the world right um to kind of have a shared platform um since then we've uh, we're actually working on a special pandemic uh, package so it's going to be an online series of between 8 to 10 articles um kind of re- reflective pieces looking at pandemic and how it might have exacerbated existing crises and trends in the region so that's actually something we're working on right now and will hopefully be ready um sometime in late november early december um so that's the that, that's the big project we're kind of working on right now uh but throughout these months we've also published you know a lot of other stories a lot of long form cultural reviews that we and um, kind of tried to have writings that that were looking at certain flashpoints in the region but without rehashing the news so for example we um you know after the the whole nepal india border crisis for example um when everyone is kind of talking about you know comparative nationalisms across both sides of you know in both countries what we thought would be interesting to do was to look at the nepal india border in the south and see how you know it changed because of cartography um you know in in early 19th century for example so you know it was something that no one was really thinking about and and so we tried to put a bit of a historical perspective um and i think you know that was really it was something that no one was thinking about um another recent story we did was um so there's this turkish show called um uh, ertuğrul which is quite big in pakistan um so that's a big conversation everyone's having but um shero sheikh who wrote the piece was looking at how pakistani state has used not just this particular show but a host of other television shows in the past to kind of consolidate a regressive kind of nationalist ideology um so so you know we try to kind of not completely ignore what's happening out there in the in in the field of news and current affairs but to try to kind of see if that can allow us to extrapolate and say something uh that's being overlooked um but in terms of our future trajectory where uh, i mentioned the membership program that we started earlier this year uh, which is basically for us to try to you know diversify uh, our source of funding so we want you know to remain as independent as we can and we want our readers to pitch in uh, even though we don't have a paywall of any sort but uh, we do have a membership which allows you to you know um pay at different ranges and there are different perks for each of each of the membership you will always get a right side up map of south asia which is our uh, kind of a unique product that we have which is basically the map of south asia but you know with with more leaves and sri lanka on the 
on with the north basically pointing down and south pointing up um just to revisit and kind of play with our sense of direction and and how arbitrary some of these things are um so you get that and and so basically the the push now is for us to try to again see if we can do more things um to try to get as many people to to be member and and kind of support the work we do um and i think that's a big challenge i mean not just for us but for independent media around the world right um um and that's at a strategic level that that's really uh, what we we have in mind around yeah no that and i'll make sure i link to that membership page as well because um i do see that you know you've got all the different packages and and different um uh, you know things for members at different levels and yes it's always tough when you have an independent um media venue like yours or like saga anthology where you're also on the team and you're trying to stay independent but you also need your you know support from uh readers and the audience so yeah i can see and especially during times like these um when it's tougher because people's attention is so distracted and you know it's i almost feel when you were saying we want to focus and do something around the pandemic and how it's affected you know the region the south asian region overall um with the specific things that have been going on there as you were saying that i was thinking about what i know and i was thinking how what i know about what's happening in south asia right now this year of pandemic is very siloed because i'll go and read something from an indian uh venue or an india centric venue or i'll go and read something from another region but you know what you're talking about is to kind of give us that holistic view that says okay this is what happened in this country in south asia but here's the implication for neighbors and the whole region and i think that is um very important because a lot of times we don't know or understand those implications until something actually happens by which point it's too late for you know for speculation or anything you know so i think that's that's very helpful and and so let me switch to another question that is again related to your uh role as the editor as the chief editor is you look across and and because daisy books is more focused more so on literature but of course literature is political it you know you can't escape the fact that all literature all writing is political so as you look across the landscape of south asian writing and literature today in your capacity as the chief editor of the magazine what are some of the things that are exciting or interesting you the most in it doesn't have to be a specific uh, work it could be a specific trend or a specific topic but what are some of the things that are exciting or interesting you the most and where do you see potentially gaps that you know you wish more writers would address uh, through their writing and their research and work i think i'll start with the gaps because that's that's something we we constantly think about and that's you know easier to kind of point out um so one big gap is and especially i mean it's 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 linked to the question of language um and the gap is uh the fact that we still don't see enough south asians talking to one another right um and when they do it's because of in historical reasons it it comes down to in english um but even when and because of the way the industry works and 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 the kind of political economy of english language journalism writing non fiction writing fiction writing 
um you know one is even folks who might be starting out wanting to write to a more regional audience or not even thinking about what kind of audience they might want to write for there are obviously industry pressures to to you know if you want to be successful you need to write to an audience that's more likely to be western or even if it's south asian it's more likely to be certain urban pockets um you know what might be described as more cosmopolitan audience so i mean which which i think is is fine but what that does oftentimes is it leaves out a whole host of writing um whose main attention or whose main aim might not be to um kind of kind of explain at a at a very basic level you know what what the societies are going through um it invites a lot of metaphors and uh kind of you know changes at a, at a formal level i think of how the writing goes so um and so i think the real need is actually for us to have more translations inside the region i mean i think it's much more interesting for nepalis to read what's you know what's what's being written in bangladesh for example in bangla um than necessarily to read the next big novel out of delhi right which will be in english um and so that's a real constraint and um that's also a place where some interesting work is happening um at a, the interesting work that's happening is at a more i would say political level um so you're seeing a lot of interesting writing in regional languages but also now increasingly in english um on on the question of caste for example and uh, and also it being written not just by a kind of academic community that that obviously did important work in you know through the years but uh, always had a very limited audience but now you're seeing a lot of people writing about caste you know in in india and in india not just from the metropolitan areas uh, but also elsewhere um you're seeing a lot of conversation about that in nepal um again and the most exciting thing for me is all of these people who are trying to kind of talk about it write about it they're they're also talking to each other and and trying to find connections um you know through through shared struggles or shared histories or trying to excavate histories that actually existed but because of various you know kind of historical reasons and are, are no longer talked about um so i think that's that's the that's the more exciting thing for me um some of this happens um in the diaspora also now obviously because you know language kind of necessarily brings you together there um and also because i think your identities kind of tend to get magnified and uh, so i think that's a positive trend in both uh, writing and conversations and kind of the literary community within south asia but also actually the one in diaspora um so i would yeah i would say those are the challenges but also the kind of positive optimistic spaces for for me yeah that's great i think it, it, i i like how you connected the thing that you see where when where you see the gaps but also that being the most exciting and interesting for you and i i can see that too i mean i'm a translator i i see the gaps in in translated spaces and there's still a lot of work to be done there because it it isn't just about somebody learning a language and translating from a source language into a you know target language they also have to understand certain cultural nuances and i think that's tricky if this the person is you know not necessarily 
you know, uh, living in, in the cultural milieu that they are translating. It's not easy. It can be done, but it takes effort and it takes a certain amount of dedication um, and immersion into the culture in ways that are not readily, easily possible, I guess. So, um, no, that's great. And I, I look forward to, you know, reading more and hearing more about translated works um, at HML South Asian. And, and so speaking about um, the, the South Asian diaspora and community um, and, and some of those gaps, I know you're also involved uh, in, you know, with the SAG anthology, which kicked off earlier this year. And we've had people from the editorial team on the Desi Books podcast before. So we had Kamila San, Aruni Kashyap, Sarah Tangam Matthews, and Mehmet Rahman. Now, I should say most, most of them were on for reasons other than the anthology, because I, when I invited them on, we, they were to talk about other topics. But then we obviously also, I think Sarah was the only one who came on specifically to discuss um, SAG. But that just goes to show what a multi-talented team um, you know, has been put together on, on this editorial team and you're a member of this team and, you know, you're, you're doing all this whole other thing with Himal South Asian. So it's great that, you know, there is this um, amazing, diverse talent uh, from uh, all across South Asia. In, in, and I've, I, as I said, I have talked about it before and I will introduce it uh, and I do introduce it at the beginning. So so I'd like to focus or hear from you, um, given, again, you know, your perspective and the work that you do with Himal. How do you see SAG anthology playing into this uh, space of South Asian uh, literature and cu literary culture and, you know, politics? How do you see the contribution or the work that SAG anthology is doing fitting in? with some of the things that we've already discussed from a Himal South Asian point of view. Well, one of the reasons when, you know, when, when Kamil approached me with, with, uh, with plans for SAG, one of the reasons why I got really excited about it is that it, in many ways, it, you know, reminds me of the, the spirit that is also Himal South Asian spirit, right? And, um, and it's all about collective work, really. Um, you know, there is a lot of, there are lots of groups and organizations and collective actions that uh, are called South Asian. Um, and usually, unfortunately, there is, um, it's mostly, it's overrepresented by people from India and then Pakistan maybe. And then you'll have a few folks from outside. But, you know, often, I mean, that's also the case with a lot of South Asian um, scholarship or, or scholarship that goes by the tag of South Asian studies. Um, but I think what you saw with, with SAG is, is that there was a gen genuine commitment to kind of have people doing interesting things from, you know, all around South Asia, all around the diaspora. And I think a real, a genuine interest in, in the belief that that will actually really improve um, the nature of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, we're not trying to put together the, as, as a lot of anthologies sometimes do, the best you know, writings from the sense of, you know, the kind of writings that might get published in New Yorker, for example. Um, our interest is actually, you know, a lot also on the kind of stories and on the kind of perspectives that 
um, that we all can bring differently from our connections with South Asia and our engagements with South Asian journalism, with South Asian visual art, um, you know, uh, academia, activism. So I think it's rare to see this kind of um, collaborative work. Um, and that's what really kind of excites me about, about SAG. Um, one example, you can already see, you know, some of that in, um, on the SAG's website. So if you go on the website and look at the, the interviews we've done so far with a lot of um, um, scholars and, and journalists and, and visual artists in, the, in South Asia, um, you know, it kind of tells you, again, a, a more interesting picture, I think, than you often see in what's described as South Asian work. So, so I think that was the real drive. And so now we're, uh, you know, looking for donations to kind of make sure that we have the resources and, you know, to compensate for all the work and labor that goes into it and, and to the contributors who kind of will, you know, who are the real kind of, uh, you know. So at the same time, um, you know, we, while we've commissioned uh, some work, we're also looking at, you know, we're inviting a lot of open contributions on different, um, along different genres. So that's the other exciting thing for us, you know, to, to maintain an open platform. Um, so I think we, so we've been, um, you know, we've been promoting um, the, the anthology and at this point, it's really important for us to, I think, get as much support as we can. Um, so if you go to, if you log on to aaww.org slash saag, um, if you put up the URL, you'll you'll get the donation page. And I think we really want people to you know pitch in whatever they can. Um, and for us again, it's very important for us to be able to compensate for all the creative work and labor that went into producing all of this. And all of this will go to the contributors directly. So um, all of us engaged editorially are you know are, are volunteers. Um, so yeah, we're, we're really excited about it. And we've, uh, we've got about a quarter of how much we wanted. So $40,000 is, is the amount we're aiming for and we've crossed 10,000 now. Um, but I think, um, uh, you know, um, I think it's, we, we want to hit the mark and, and, and we want to ask people to please support, um, a kind of collaborative work that is very rare. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that'll be really exciting. I think. Yeah, I think I think something you just said that is, is really key, and I want to highlight that again for our listeners, which is that Sarg anthology, and and for that matter, Himal South Asian, isn't you know you guys are not trying to be like the New York you know best off anything. It's about the collaborative diversity and the voices that are typically underrepresented in mainstream especially mainstream western media which you know as we all know they like to anoint one or two people or writers or, or thinkers from south asia as the ones and then that's it for years and years we will not hear about anybody but those you know handful of writers and thinkers and so what i like about both himal south asian as well as the sag anthology is this more democratic uh, approach to you know collaborative uh, creativity and, and works that are being put out there which have more um, I, I guess not just diversity but it's not just diversity in terms of the output diversity in terms of thought because everyone is coming from such different fields as well 
So I think that's very important. And, and I, I will make sure that we link to the, the, the URL that you mentioned, uh, because in terms of being able to pay for that kind of work, uh, quite frankly, these are the people who need to be paid um, because what, some of the work that I've seen anyway is coming from both Himal South Asian and Sark is, is risky. Some of these folks are taking risks in terms of voicing issues um, that generally you know, are not as well received because of how political they may be or how controversial they may be. And yet that is exactly what we need um, right now, as opposed to, you know, quite frankly, yet another, I don't know, yet another slum saga or an arranged marriage saga that seems to be what uh, the Western audience thinks of when they think of South Asia, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, even purely from the point of view of wanting to read rich, interesting, intellectually stimulating stuff, I mean, you know, it's, it's so much more nourishing to be able to to listen to a lot of different perspectives and and you know i mean it obviously gives you a much better understanding of what the region is going through and what its you know prospects are and what its history is uh, to be able to fit all of these different point of views because because the what you lose if you don't do that is you kind of again end up listening to the same now again might be you know great interesting writers in their own domain and but you know once they once the industry shapes you into a certain kind of voice and, and markets you as a certain kind of voice, um, then even, even when they try to do all they can to represent the different perspectives and to try to bring in, uh, you know, more about the region, be more granular, all of that kind of gets lost, right? Because there, there, are, there are costs to, to you know, to, to having writings that, that easily cater to all kinds of tastes. So, so I think we genuinely, you know, at Himal and, and also at SAG, we genuinely try to be radical in the true sense of the word. That is to, to go at the root of things, right? To, be, to interrogate things that are often taken for granted, um, you know, even at the level of, of copy, uh, you know, the way Western media can sometimes write captions for things in South Asia. Um, you know, for, for the longest time, we used to keep seeing Nepal be mm -hmm. referred to as the Himalayan country, for example. Even though a large intersection you know, in the south is is mm. kind of you know geographically continuous with North Indian plains, for example, and, and this kind of thing is you know goes around South Asia. So I think we don't we want to get out of the cliches, mental cliches, and and kind of formal cliches, and for that we have to kind of we have to work a bit harder and try to um, include more exciting voices. So. Um, so that's what you know we at Himal tried to do, and that's what the the collective at at SAG is trying to do. And I think it's it's and you know these kind of efforts right. need support. And uh, yeah, as you were saying that, I was just thinking as well how for me, you know, I'll say selfishly as a writer, I try to make sure as as a writer who focuses on South Asia myself, right? I write about my culture, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I think it's important that all of us uh, who, you know, those of us who call ourselves writers have, uh, that, that we support, um, you know, venues and initiatives like Himal South Asian as well as Zag, uh, because otherwise, you know, that it's that danger of the single story. 
we've got those one or two or three main narratives, as you said, um, that get promoted as being off South Asia. And what happens is then we as writers who want to write about other things, gatekeepers don't want us to write about those things. They want us to keep writing about this trendy, whatever the latest you know, trend in literary works is, um, you know, they want us to do more and more of that. So I think as a, as selfishly as a writer, I want to support initiatives like Himal and like Sark because I want to know um, and, and uplift those diverse points of view and diverse uh, creative works because that, that, you know, the rising tide helps to lift all boats then, correct? Yeah, exactly. I think it has larger implication for, you know, the culture of writing, reading, of journalism, and, and in general, I think civic society in general, you know, it would be absurd to leave that out. It would be kind of mm-hmm. trying to understand, let's say, the American culture just by reading Philip Roth and David Foster Wallace, you know, and Jonathan Franzen. And if, if those three were all, you know, were what gave you the full picture of the American society, you would get a very strange and and, you know, um, uh, imperfect, inaccurate, and, and eventually boring picture of, of the literary culture and social life there. And it applies to South Asia, of course. I mean, given the linguistic variety, you know, the, the kind of historical linkages, I mean, it's, it's um, I mean, sometimes it's difficult to kind of, what we at Himal find sometimes is difficult to, you know, get, get, get all the voices represented just because there is such, um, exciting diversity. So, but I think there's one has to have constant effort at that, and and to you know challenge ourselves editorially to also think outside of cliches that we might ourselves construct. Um, and that's the constant effort. Yes, thank you. And I just yeah truly appreciate the hard work that you know teams that like him, our South Asian and Sark Anthology are doing because yes, it is. It's not easy work and it's not highly compensated work at all. So um, it ends up being more of a labor of love and passion and intention. So um, thank you, I should say, first of all, thank you. And thank you for sharing with the listeners, um, you know, a little bit about both Himal South Asian and um, Sag Anthology. I want to end with a question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And if, if you, you know, as you know, they see, I use the word they see to mean South Asian. I know some folks don't think, they think it's more India centric and we've, I've gone into this a lot of times, but I use it to encompass South Asian. So when I ask the question, please tell us your favorite, um, you know, what's your one favorite they see book and why? Of course, I mean all of South Asia in that. So if you could please tell our listeners about your most favorite Desi book and why? Can this be both fiction or nonfiction? Uh, anything, yes. Any fiction uh, or nonfiction, yes. I should have thought about this one. Huh. I'll go with fiction. <laughs> it's tough, yeah. <laughs> well, I know it's tough, right? Um, it, I, yeah, I it, think I'll it, go with a fiction yeah. book. Um, I would say The, the Shadow Lines by Amitabh mm-hmm. Ghosh. I mean... Yeah, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I I constantly think of some sentences and phrases from that book. So I, I guess that that makes it close enough to favorite. Of course, and it's it's a terrific book. But so tell us tell us why specifically you know that book has stayed with you 
that you know you go back and think about some. I mean, I'm trying to think of there's there's this line the protagonist I think says about is basically describing um, kind of communal conflict and riots and um, and mm-hmm. kind of almost almost implies that that's kind of that's what we've gone through and that's almost something that unites us that we're all people that have gone through this horrific you know these such horrific episodes and and our histories and and kind of go through the same cut through the same lines and that's what connects us you know these crises connect us and um i mean recently i've been reading the some works by the historian sanjay subramanian and he's you know he's um in the, in the in the late 90s and early 2000s he was writing about secularism and how often times there was a very poor understanding of what secular uh, you know india's own history of even pre colonial histories of of kind of communal strife and and sometimes simplification of of the historical understanding um and basically saying that you know uh, some of these episodes of violence are not new and constructed purely due to colonialism that we carry a lot of other baggages um i don't know i i it's it's a fictional work that kind of forces me to think about that i mean one doesn't know you know the history of how how thick those conflicts were and and if that was the predominant theme but it's it's something that um makes one think i guess it's been a while since i've read the book myself but what i do remember of the book is just what you said which is you know it's easy to pin everything on colonialism as if that's the reason everything is what it is but you know we have other you know south asia has such a rich and ancient uh history and there are there's a lot of other things and memories that we've maybe internalized in, into our dna over the you know centuries and and there's so much that brings us together and keeps us apart and so i what i do remember about the book is that he goes into a lot about how memory can vary so much whether it's about historical events or even personal experiences and it doesn't mean that you know one person is wrong or right in terms of how they're experiencing those memories or remembering them but i think that just you know even all the historical events that um goes goes into whether it's the partition or you know the communal riots or the yeah. world second world war i think right no, I, yeah it was the second world war so um you know even all of those when he describes you know what um how all of those events have um affected the many characters in the story to me i think it make it made me question i don't remember the lines like you do but what i do remember is when i finished reading it it made me question how i've processed you know whether it's received wisdom about those historical events or my own experience of um events that have happened in my lifetime um that that are now part of you know our collective history in the region so yeah i think that that's one of those novels that yeah is very layered right there's a lot going on and there's a lot to take away i don't think you can get everything that you're meant to get from it in one uh reading it kind of reminds me in a way of 
sometimes himal and you know projects like sag are also accused of being romantic and nostalgic about about a kind of unity that you know never really existed and you know at, at we at himal we've always kind of you know we've never made the pretense of obviously the solution doesn't lie in a romantic imagination or nostalgic kind of myth about you know unity of that kind but it's but but it's also the recognition that our solutions all seem to be collective right and so you know the realists or kind of you know kind of hawkish mm-hmm. national security types will say oh you know this project is pointless because the nations never come together and then there's a kind of i think overly romantic idea not based on on hard reality and and we think both are inaccurate but also intellectually you know not very exciting so um and and again but then the struggle is to try to also you know fight those battles and and kind of continuously demonstrate the benefits and and you know the need for the more, more collective solidarity in the region yeah that's that's very well put i totally agree with you well thank you so much banga i've had such a wonderful conversation here and you know you've given me more food for thought um i will definitely make sure i link to all the um things that you mentioned with them all south asian as well as with sagan anthology and i really appreciate you taking the time to come on and despite this being <laughs> you know the week that it is and the year that it is um with so much going on you know i i didn't realize quite frankly that you had just started your editorial position this year so i can imagine you've got a lot on your plate already so i really appreciate you making the time and and, and yeah, thanks thank a lot you. for for having me and you know giving me the opportunity to talk about himal south asian uh, and and the sag project so thanks In today's five Desi faves segment, we have Kavita Jindal. She's an award-winning writer whose short stories and poems have appeared in anthologies and literary journals worldwide and been broadcast on BBC Radio. She is the author of two poetry books, Rain Check Renewed and Patina, in which her writing was described as witty and wry. with a steely heart her poem kabariwala is included in 100 great indian poems and she is the co-founder of the whole kahani writers collective kavita's novel manual for a decent life is just out in the us it won the bright horse prize for the novel in the uk in 2018 the book begins in 1996 when a principled and spirited young woman from Uttar Pradesh in North India sets her sights on becoming a member of parliament her romance with the scion of a Delhi business dynasty threatens that dream the novel which is being described as being both epic and intimate plays out against a backdrop of a tumultuous time in indian politics in a world where nothing is what it seems kavita shares her five favorite desi books next enjoy hello i'm kavita jindal and i'm delighted to be sharing five desi fave books with you 
My own debut novel, Manual for a Decent Life, has just been released. It was published earlier this year by Bright Horse Books, neatly coinciding with the coronavirus lockdown and travel restrictions worldwide. So, like many authors, I had to rethink my book launch plans. I had a couple of online launch events, and now the novel is also published in the UK by Linen Press. Today I've selected five books that had some influence on the way I wrote the novel. Reading these books encouraged me to keep going with the broad and expansive scope of my book. The books are very different from each other and also different from my novel, but the common thread is that they are all set in the past, or recent past, in India, and they cover both society and politics and how you cannot necessarily escape the latter. It affects every life, even in an unseen way. My novel, as I mentioned, is called Manual for a Decent Life. It's been categorised as historical fiction, a political thriller, literary fiction, a romance. Well, it's all of those things. I began writing it ten years ago, and it's set in North India at the turn of the century, so we're talking about the late 1990s. It's just before the digital era and the 21st century, so for me it was an interesting time to record, in a fictional narrative, what I wanted to say about society and politics of that time. I did do a lot of research, obviously, over the years, all the books I've read and liked have probably played into the style of my fiction and played into the fact that I have a large cast of characters in my book. A bit like in film, they're supporting characters, but they all have a role to play in the story that unfolds. The two main protagonists in Manual for a Decent Life tell their stories from their own separate perspectives. One is a woman, the politician in the making, and the other is the man she's having a romance with. He's the son of a wealthy industrialist. Both of them have to deal with the machinations of their family dynasties and navigate the conventions of the wider world. And this brings me to my first selection for today. Pinjar, written in 1950 by Amrita Pritam. The story of an abducted young girl starts just before partition and it ends shortly after partition. The novel was written in Punjabi and translated into English by Kushwan Singh in 1987. The edition I read was published by Thara Press in 2009. Amrita Pritham has constructed a heartrending story and in it various characters question the plight of abducted women, of married women, of village women living their normal lives as ascribed to them by society, by their place in that society and culture and by their religion. These women question, they feel anger, resentment, frustration, and somehow they also have an acceptance of the way things are. The main character, Puru, who becomes Hamida, is also a doer. She takes action to look after others, despite her own misfortune. 
Puru, who as I said becomes Hamida, is also someone who is ambivalent about religion because of her own circumstances. The story, which I found quite an emotional read, has various twists and coincidences and also choices that the main character has to make right till the end. Something we often hear, or at least I often say, is that truth is stranger than fiction. And from the books I'm mentioning today, I learned not to worry if the events seem implausible to some people, when in fact authors know that they are writing fiction. But in some cases, the fiction is toned down from the truth that is far more bizarre. I mean, sometimes the truth is miraculous. But if you write it, it doesn't seem feasible. Sometimes life's coincidences are so amazing. But if you put it in fiction, it seems far-fetched. Talking of far-fetched, my second book today is The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. This was published in 1988. Mostly everyone knows about the fatwa and what happened after. In fact, I didn't read the book until 2007 when I was doing a master's in creative writing in London and one of the modules I took was British contemporary literature. This book was on the set list. When it was published, Angela Carter described it as a populous and loquacious book. Yes, true. Intriguingly, the narratives digress here, they digress there, and then they carry on. The writing is so confident that it pulls you along. Rushdie's descriptions of England and Bombay are adept in that the characters see the things that the author wants to focus on. This is naturally what all writers do, but I found it was heightened in the case of Rushdie's writing. The third book I want to talk about is called Song Sung True. Compared to the previous book, this is an obscure choice. It's the autobiography of the singer Malka Pukharaj. It was written in Urdu in 2002 when she was about 91. It was translated into English by Salim Kidwai and published in 2003 by Kali for Women, which became part of the publishing house Zuban. The book came out just before Malka Pukraj died in 2004. She was born in 1912. So this memoir is fascinating because of its descriptions of her life and all the places she lived in. Not just places, palaces, I should say, where she was a regular visitor because she was a singer at the court of Maharaja Hari Singh, the last ruler of Jammu and Kashmir. She was appointed as his court singer at the age of nine and she stayed at court until 18. I didn't actually know her history when I read the book. The reason I sought out her memoir when I knew it was available was because as a teenager I'd been taken to a concert where she sang. She seemed such a characterful lady and she had such undaz when she sang, even as an elderly lady or when she answered the audience's questions. And by that I mean she had this strength and stylishness in the way she communicated, so I was curious about her story. 
Also, as I said, I have a particular interest in a record of the times, in a record of what society is like at a particular moment, what the cultures and rituals are, and why. Although the why is sometimes not answered. And also the place of women, those who challenge accepted norms, and those who do not. Malka's book is narrow in scope because it's about her life. And in fact, there was disappointment with the book that she did not spill all the beans or answer all the things the gossips wanted to know. In her book, she gave her version of events and settled her scores. Fair enough. I found her memoir was not just a documentary. It encompassed different strands of life and also political events that affected particular communities. Just before partition... She had moved to Lahore, but then after partition, um, when Kashmir remained a part of India, um, she had to cross borders to come and perform in the places she used to live and perform in before. My fourth book is A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth. This book was published in 1993. An adaptation of the novel was recently on TV on the BBC. I don't know if any of you watched it. If you did, tweet me and tell me what you thought. The adaptation came with controversies, but on the whole I think it was a good step to have an Indian drama with an Indian cast on primetime television. Of course, the drama was not contemporary, it was very much a period piece. I read A Suitable Boy the year it came out, and goodness, what a doorstopper it was. I think I would find it difficult to immerse myself in such a big book again, what with being plugged into emails, Twitter, etc. the whole time. This book is over a thousand pages long. Talk about populous and loquacious. I remember when I read it, I enjoyed what was culturally familiar to me, being set down in a witty manner, and I could relate to everything. The book was firmly set in India, yet it was a hit in general literary circles in the UK and elsewhere. Vikram Seth employed rhyme, usually his rhyming couplets, in the chapter descriptions in the contents and in other places. These little quirks were allowed, and I felt emboldened at the time I wrote my own book, two decades later, to include the quirks of the characters as I envisioned them, and also not to shift away from the places where I'd set the scenes, even if asked to by agents, who were just trying to be helpful. This obstinacy is something I think I took from the literary big hitters I've mentioned, Salman Rushdie and Vikram Seth. It almost seemed to me that you have to go against the grain of what is being asked for, or what agents and publishers think they want. I suppose each writer should write the book they want to write. They may or may not luck out with the same literary popularity that other writers received, but they should be bold enough to write the book they actually want to write. My fifth selection is a novel called Home by Manju Kapoor. It was published in 2006. The story in home is not new to anyone from the subcontinent, either who lives there or has visited often. But I'm a great admirer of Manju Kapoor for the reason that she very briskly, intelligently and acceptingly 
or at least superficially acceptingly, details the daily life of households. Mainly she concentrates on the women, but she is astute in her observations of everyone, men, women and children, and the interactions. In this book, Home, she absolutely nails the daily dramas of joint family life in a business household in Delhi. Along the way, without the shadow of authorial judgment, in fact, with deadpan delivery, we are treated to almost all the societal superstitions surrounding birth, marriage and death. So when I say I like books that pin down a record where you can point and say, this is what it was like, even though it's fiction, this is that kind of book, it's a window into the very recent past. I hope you enjoyed my pick of five Daisy faves, and I hope you'll be ordering Manual for a Decent Life too, in whichever format you like, and from whichever retailer you like. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to episode 19 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. Episode 20 will be up in a couple of weeks. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books or Instagram at Desi.Books and tag the account if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellodesibooks at gmail.com. The transcript will be up in the next few days on the website theycbooks.co stay healthy keep reading and write well hello and welcome to episode 20 of theycy books news and views about theycy literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we have Serena Prabasi in our They See Lit Biz segment. She's an activist, coffee shop founder, and writer of the memoir, The Coffee House Resistance, Bringing Hope in Desperate Times. We also have the literary translator, Haider Shabazz, sharing some important works from Lahore, Pakistan, in the Desi Boost segment. Haider's latest translation is a novel by Mirza Atar Beg titled Hassan's State of Affairs. I'd also like to share a bit about um, a collaboration project between the Global Literature in Libraries Initiative and Desi Books. Throughout the month of December, I will be sharing brief interviews with South Asian literary translators about one of their favorite translated works, translated by them. I'll include the links in the episode transcript on the website. And if you're connected on Twitter or Instagram, details will be shared there daily too. In the introductory post on December the 1st, I talked about the need to spotlight South Asian literature in translation. 
Please, please feel free to uh, share or recommend your own favorite works in translation and tag the Desi Books social media accounts. My hope is that in 2021, we can invite some of these translators for a virtual Desi Books in Translation book club, which I've mentioned before. So please do join in. These books aren't simply stories. They're historical, cultural, and literary artifacts. And, if we're open to it, each one of them can reveal to us new wisdom about our world and, indeed, our own selves. Now please sit back and enjoy the usual episode segments. In Notable New Books... We'll be covering a few books that I missed earlier in the year as well. You can find all the titles mentioned in this new book segment at bookshop.org, which benefits local independent booksellers directly. Go to bookshop.org slash lists slash they see dash books dash 2020. This is a US based site, so my apologies to non US listeners. But you can still see the list of all the books that have come out in 2020 and been mentioned on the podcast. I know I don't always catch all new books by writers of South Asian origin, so if you've got a new book coming out, please tag the They See Books account on Twitter or Instagram to let me know. And you can always send an email to hellotheysebooks at gmail.com. The social media links will also be in the transcript, and they're always on the website. Hands for Language by Uma Menon came out in August. It's a poetry collection that takes readers on a journey through the eyes of a teenage girl of color living in America. It explores themes of transnationalism, migration, language, family, and culture, and expands the dialogue around literary representation. A Terrible Thing by Gita Raleigh was out in October. It's a short collection about goddesses and their elemental power, their vulnerability. The poems are as delicate and formidable as their protagonists, which include Draupadi, Bollywood's Nergis, Herzili and Ocean, Kali and Anagule. The Voice of Sheila Chandra by Kazim Ali came out in October and it's titled For the Influential Singer Who Was Left Almost Voiceless by a Terrible Syndrome. These poems bring sweet melodies and rhythms as the voices blend and become multitudinous. There's an honouring of not only survival, but of persistence, as this part, research-based, pensive collection contemplates what it takes to move forward when the unimaginable holds you back. The Girl and the Goddess, Stories and Poems of Divine Wisdom, by Nikita Gill, is a September book it's a novel in verse, exploring Hindu mythology and legend. It's also an intimate coming-of-age story told in linked poems. 
Here We Are by Arti Namdev Shahani came out in October. It's a memoir about an immigrant family's American dream, the justice system that took it away, and the daughter who fought to get it back. And this is from the NPR correspondent Arti Namdev Shahani. The Nine Lives of Pakistan Dispatches from a Precarious State by Declan Walsh, and this was out in November. He is the New York Times international correspondent. There is This is, I should say, his portrait of Pakistan over a tumultuous decade through the dramatic lives of nine fascinating individuals. Enter the navel for the love of creative fiction, non-fiction. Enter the Navel for the Love of Creative Nonfiction by Anjali Roy came out in September. It's a chapbook of creative nonfiction that includes, among other things, Hawaiian and Hindu origin stories rooted in the navel that connect us to the divine, the role of the navel in and after human birth, a story of the author's own teenage navel piercing, plastic surgery that removed her mother's navel, and more. Dancing in the Mosque, an Afghan mother's letter to her son. By Homera Kaderi, this is out in December. It's a memoir about a mother's unimaginable choice in the face of oppression and abuse in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. It's a letter to the son she was forced to leave behind. Dr. Kaderi has written several books and won awards in Afghanistan and Iran, and this is her first book in English. A Will to Kill by R.V. Raman is out in December. An Agatha Christie, I should say, style, murder, and crime mystery set in modern-day India, and the first of a series featuring private investigator Harit Atreya. It's got everything, the haunted manor, estranged relatives, a dying patriarch and more. The Family Tree by Cyrish Hussain is a February novel that came out in the UK and was shortlisted for the 2020 Costa First Novel Award. It's a multi-generational story of a British Muslim family. And the back blurb describes it as full of love, laughter and resilience, as well as all the faults, mistakes and stubborn loyalties which make us human. Zigzags by Kamala Puligandla, and I apologize if I got the pronunciation wrong there, came out in October. It's a debut novel about parties, friendships, Finding Yourself, Writing, and Relationships. Take It Back by Kia Abdullah came out in December in the US. It's already been out in the UK. It's a courtroom thriller focusing on the British Muslim community, and it deals with themes of family, belonging, immigration, sexual crimes, and more. In today's Desi Litbis segment, 
we have Serena Prabasi. Serena has lived the life of a global nomad and is a relatively new American. She was born in the Netherlands to Nepali parents and raised in India, China and Nepal. She spent her formative years in the United States and Ethiopia. Her professional career as a leader in international development, working on global health, education, water and sanitation, spans over 25 years. In 2011, she moved from Addis Ababa to New York City and started Bunny Coffee with her husband. Their small business soon became a hub for community conversation and action, especially after the uh, 2016 presidential elections. Her father, a retired UN official, uh, Satish Prabhasi, was also on the podcast on episode 17 in the Desi Books, uh, Desi Boost, I apologize, segment. In her memoir, The Coffeehouse Resistance, Bringing Hope in Desperate Times, Serena writes about her personal journey across the globe, starting her coffee shop, and her activism uh, for a fairer, more equitable society. This is a beautifully written memoir that came out in 2019 and deserves more attention. In a year when uh, independent, community-based businesses like hers are dealing with new kinds of challenges, I spoke with Serena about her writing, publishing a debut book later in life, starting her business with her husband, her activism work, and what happens next. On a personal note, let me just say how much this book enriched my own worldview about many aspects. Reading it during this pandemic year made me think deeper about my own literary activism, which is definitely not at the level of what Serena is doing politically. And her meditations on coffee rituals and the role of coffee houses in our communities for centuries are profound. This is a lot more than an immigrant memoir about self and personal identity. This is about how we can make change happen from right where we sit with the power of our communities. How we can put some energy, positive energy, out into the world versus taking negative energy from it. And how we can assimilate into other cultures while still upholding and respecting our own. Toward the end of the recording, we had a bit of a broadband connection issue. So um, if it sounds like we talked over each other a couple of times, we didn't really. There was some weird time lag thing uh, with the podcast app. So my apologies for that. And now here's Serena Prabasi. In today's Desi Boost segment, we have Haider Shabazz. Haider studied history at Yale University and creative writing 
at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is currently doing a PhD in comparative literature at UCLA. He was awarded a Charles Pick Fellowship in 2016, and he is the translator of Mirza Atharbeg's Hassan's State of Affairs, which came out with HarperCollins India in 2019. His work has appeared in Asymptote, Words Without Borders, Brooklyn Rail, The Caravan, and LA Review of Books. He lives in Lahore, Pakistan, and recently he won the 2020 Jawad Memorial Prize for Urdu English Translation for his translation of The Sea, a short story by Khalidah Hussain. Here's a bit about the book that Shabazz has translated. Mirza Atharbeg is an important contemporary Urdu writer who is known for his avant-garde writing on post-colonial themes. Hassan's State of Affairs, his first book to be translated into English, is a surreal ride through Pakistan. It follows an accountant, Hassan, and a group of filmmakers, Masquerade Productions, who are working on Pakistan's first surrealist film, titled This Film Cannot Be Made. As the film's production runs into hurdles, escalating from the comic to the horrific, the text itself explodes into multiple storylines, genres and characters, and bends language and form. And the result is an entirely new kind of novel, which sounds amazing. Now, please enjoy the three very interesting works that Haider Shabazz is boosting in this segment, and the links will be in the transcript. You've been listening to episode 20 of Desi Books, news and views about Desi literature from the world over. Episode 21 will be up in a couple of weeks. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books or Instagram at Desi.Books and tag the account if you have requests or suggestions. Email at hellodesibooks at gmail.com. The transcript will be up in a few days on the website, daisybooks.co. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well. <laughs>